Today is my last Sunday teaching you in person. I know, sad. Next week we will be traveling, and the week after we will be back in California where I will resume teaching, but we'll be live from the West Coast. I've loved being here in person. I look forward to, if the Lord wills, finishing seminary and then coming back here to just be here and teach in person. But we're back in our Answers Bible curriculum today, and our lesson, according to the curriculum, is entitled, Jesus Obeys God. But as I looked over the lesson this week and the passage that it's based off of, the title and the theme of the lesson didn't really seem to fit the passage so much, so I renamed the lesson. It's uh, Jesus Grows Up, and we're going to be taking the lesson in a slightly different direction than Answers in Genesis originally designed. But I trust it will be edifying. Last week we had a jam-packed lesson in which we talked about the timing of Jesus' birth and the timing of the wise man's visit. We talked about the significance of the wise man's visit, and we talked about Matthew's challenging use of non-contextual Old Testament fulfillment. As a main takeaway from last week's lesson, we saw that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, whose installation as king over Israel and as ruler of all the nations cannot be stopped. We must all bow down before King Jesus now and with every area of our lives, lest we be found to be outside of his kingdom and subdued wrathfully by the king as rebels. Trying to hold on to the rule of our own lives will not work. But if we take upon ourselves the yoke of the mighty but gracious King Jesus, we will obtain eternal life. Now up to this point, we've only been looking at Jesus' life as a baby and as a toddler through the unique accounts given in Matthew and Luke. But today, we move forward in time to the only, account of, uh, the only account of Jesus as an older child, almost a young man. There's so much that our minds wonder regarding the growing up of Jesus. What was it like being his parent? How did his later siblings regard him? What did Jesus, what did Jesus do all those years that he was growing up? The Bible doesn't answer many of these questions, and there are a bunch of false gospels that don't, don't, don't really shed light on that. But God's Spirit did determine that one particular childhood event, aside from what already happened with the wise men, was necessary for us to know about and to take to heart. So once again, we're turning back to the Gospel of Luke to get a unique account from him about one special visit of Jesus to Jerusalem. Why did God want us to know about this event of Jesus' life? What does Luke's account show us about our Messiah? How does Luke's inclusion of this account further Luke's main purpose in his gospel? And what difference should this account make to our lives today? We're going to investigate those questions, and we're going to be following our basic order for the inductive Bible study method. We'll observe the passage, interpret the passage, and then close by considering application for ourselves. Let's pray before we go on. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for all that you have revealed. I pray that it would have its perfect effect on us. Help me to be able to explain it. Help them be able to understand it, appreciate it. Worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 2. We've been in Luke 2, but now we're at the latter part of this chapter. Our section of text is not that long today, but we're going to read it carefully to understand exactly what God's Spirit intended us to know. So look down to chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1021, right on the edge of the page, right before we go to the next one. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. Before we read it, let me just briefly reintroduce the context. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and acclaimed by the shepherds. 
In the middle of the chapter, Jesus was brought to Jerusalem by his parents to be dedicated as the firstborn and for Mary and Joseph to offer the necessary sacrifice of purification on Mary's behalf. While there, two old righteous individuals, Simeon and Anna, prophesied regarding Jesus' future redemption and spoke to all those who were in the temple about this very special child. Let's pick up the narrative, starting in verse 39 now. Please follow along as I read. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made, which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. Okay. Let's follow our inductive Bible study method and begin with simple observations. Notice that verse 39 says, that after Joseph and Mary finished the necessary presentations at the temple according to the law, the couple returned with the newborn Jesus to Galilee and Nazareth to their own city. Nazareth, Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary were originally from. But remember what we learned last week. To where did Joseph and Mary technically return after first going to Jerusalem? Not Nazareth, but... But where? Bethlehem. Yeah, we have to have the visit of the Magi in Bethlehem. They couldn't have gone back to Nazareth after this first presentation. They went back to Bethlehem. But they do end up in, Ma in Nazareth. Matthew explains more specifically in his gospel how the couple ended up in Nazareth. We didn't read that whole explanation last week, but some of you may remember, or some of you may know. How did the couple end up not in Bethlehem, but Nazareth? Well, they have the visit of the wise men in, in Bethlehem, and then as soon as, as soon as the wise men leave, God says to Joseph, get up and leave. Why? He has to go to Egypt because... Herod is going to try to kill the child. So they leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. They stay in Egypt for some time. We don't know how long. But then, when Herod dies, they return to Israel. But they don't return to Bethlehem. Matthew actually tells us why. Why not? Yes, yeah, Steve. That's right. 
Herod's son Archelaus was ruling over the area of Judea that they formerly were in, in Bethlehem. And Joseph was afraid to go there. And then God warned him, don't go there, go back to Nazareth. And that's what they do. Just to get a little more background on this, just show you some maps here. Upon the death of Herod in approximately 4 BC, Herod's kingdom was split up four ways. You can see different colors here on the left. The writing might be a little bit hard. Maybe you can see it better on the TV screens. But we actually have his kingdom divided up among three sons. And then some things become independent. We have the one son, Herod Archelaus. He receives Judea, this would be this green section here, Judea, Samaria, and Edomia, to the west and south of Herod's original kingdom. Another son, though, Herod, Herod Philip II, received Golanitis, which would be the top, top right, the brown section on this left map, or Golanitis over there on the right map. He received the area northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And then the third son, Herod Antipas, received Galilee and Perea. So that would be this blue section on this left map. Galilee and Perea are not quite next to each other, but they were both given to him. This son, Herod Antipas, is the main Herod that we see in the rest of the Gospels. He's the one who steals his brother Philip's wife. He's the one that imprisons and beheads John the Baptist. And he's the one that administers Jesus' second Roman trial, Herod Antipas. And then the last division is this yellow section. The Decapolis area was granted independence as a group of city-states. No, no leader was governing all of them. They were autonomous. This was a heavily Gentile region uh, with temples to Greek and Roman gods and later the emperor cult. So we have it divided up three ways among his sons and then the Decapolis region. Now you may ask, why are all Herod's sons named Herod also? Well, either Herod really liked his own name or the name Herod became a surname adopted by his sons. It's confusing for us, yes, but it was not too unnormal for the time, especially for great men. They all do have Herod in their name. But if the territory of Herod the Great was divided this way, why did God direct Joseph and Mary to settle in Nazareth and Galilee when that was under the control of another one of Herod's sons? You were afraid to go to Judea because Archelaus was there, but there's another son in Galilee. Why is that any better? Well, probably this is because Herod Archelaus was already engaging in brutal acts at the very beginning of his reign, just as his father had, while Herod Antipas was not as noticeably brutal. According to Josephus, remember he's the first century Jewish Roman historian, Archelaus had 3,000 Jews killed in Jerusalem before he had even received officially his new title as or his new title as ruler from Caesar Augustus. So in 4 BC, he's already massacring Jews. In fact, Archelaus' rule was so ineffective that just nine years later, AD 6, Caesar Augustus revoked Archelaus' kingdom and sent him into exile in Gaul. That would be modern France. So you, you're not allowed to rule anymore. His old area of rule was given over to Roman governors. Which is why, later on in the Gospel, we see the Roman Pontius Pilate passing judgment on Jesus and ruling over Judea, and not someone from the Herodian dynasty. This later development, by the way, was very loathsome to the Jews. They would have preferred a client king that they somehow could have claimed was one of their own, rather than be ruled by a Gentile. Remember, even though Herod's house was Edomian from Edom, they ostensibly, they claimed to be Jews. They followed the Jewish religion, nominally. 
So they kind of were Jews, but a Roman governor, that was a direct reminder that the Jews were not independent, and they detested that. That's the situation we see in the rest of the Gospels. But back here to verse 39 in Luke chapter 2, Luke skips over the events. He skips over the events that caused Mary and Joseph to end up in Nazareth, and he simply reports in this verse that the couple eventually came to Nazareth. He says returns, but he's just skipping over some information. Notice also, going on, notice that verse 40 says that Jesus grew both in strength and in wisdom, and that the grace of God was on Jesus. Now, notice verses 41 to 42. It said it was customary for Jesus' parents to go up every year to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Why would they need to make this trip? Why go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? They may have had relatives in Jerusalem, but that's not the reason. Yeah. That's right. This is actually according to the command of the law of God, according to the books of Moses. There were actually three feasts that all the males of Israel were supposed to present themselves before God in Jerusalem. What were the other two feasts, if you remember? Very good. Those are actually the same. Feast of Tabernacle and Booze are the same. What's the other one? Yeah, Feast of First Fruits. They go by different names, so it can be a little bit confusing, but you have the Feast of Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you have the Feast of First Fruits, also called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And then you have the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. So those are the three different feasts. And if you, according to, according to the law of Moses, every male of Israel was to present himself in Jerusalem for those feasts. And they often brought their families. Now these feasts were a big deal. With emphasis on big. Could you imagine something similar in our own time? If every male in New Jersey, bringing their families, suddenly gathered in one city. That would be a ton of people. Yet there was something like this in the situation of Israel for the feasts. You're talking a massive influx of people. A tripling or quadrupling of Jerusalem's normal population. And many people coming from outside Israel. That's what they're doing here by going up to the Passover feast. Passover feast began with a celebration of Passover itself on a certain day, and then followed, it was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Six days of eating only unleavened bread in your homes, and a seventh day of Sabbath and solemn assembly. So altogether, eight days. Now Luke tells us that when Jesus was 12, the family went up to celebrate the Passover feast, and they spent the, number, the, the customary number of days in Jerusalem. Eight days. But notice verse 43. While the rest of the family was returning... Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were not aware. Instead, his parents thought he must be somewhere in the caravan. And notice that the family had traveled with a whole group of relatives and acquaintances to Jerusalem. This makes sense, considering what we just said. Many others from Nazareth would have needed to be in Jerusalem as well for the feast, and traveling was seen as safer and more enjoyable when you did it with people you knew. The caravan goes a day's journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth, and Joseph and Mary are checking for Jesus among their relatives, but they soon realize he's not there. Now, can you imagine their feeling? Not only are we missing our child, but this child is the Messiah. You mean you lost or left behind the Messiah? So they return to Jerusalem to look for him there. But where do you begin looking for your child in such a large city with so many people? Where could he be? After three days, they find Jesus in the temple complex, sitting with a bunch of Jewish teachers. 
Notice what the text says Jesus is doing. He's listening, asking questions, and apparently also answering questions, or at least replying to the teacher's answers, since verse 47 says that all who heard him, teacher and bystander, were amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers. Notice what Jesus is not doing. He's not anxiously searching for his parents. He's not crying, and he's not otherwise showing any agitation about being left behind. Notice that Joseph and Mary were astonished at seeing Jesus and what was happening in the temple. And Mary says to Jesus, Son, why have you treated us this way? What is implied in this question? What is implied in this question? Yeah, right. Right, that Jesus has potentially done something wrong. Either he's done something wrong, or if not, he better have a good explanation for why he didn't do something wrong, because it sure looks like it. Notice that neither Mary nor Joseph apologize for their actions. The question from Mary assumes that if anyone has done wrong, it's Jesus. And Mary adds, Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And notice the phrase, your father. Whom does Mary mean? Joseph. And notice Mary plainly admits what their emotional state has been as they've searched for him. We have been anxious on your behalf. We've been worried. We've been flustered. We've been agitated. So explain yourself, son. Notice Jesus' response. And these are the first words from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He says, For what reason were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now notice that house may be italicized in your Bibles. This indicates that the word is not in the original text, but it has been supplied by the translators to help, get us, help give us a sense of the meaning. And this is necessary because the text literally re- reads in the Greek, in the of my father. There's no noun. In the of my father. What does he mean? Well, the noun has to be inferred from the context. And the phrase could be understood as, in the things of my father. And that's the way that the King James Version and the New King James Version take it. They actually translate it just slightly differently, but in the things of my father, meaning in the business of my father, or about my father's business. Notice, though, that when Jesus says, my father, whom does he mean? He means God. So there's a direct contrast here between Mary's use of your father and Jesus' use of my father. Notice also the contrasting word, but, in verse 50. Luke says, but they, his parents, they did not understand what he was telling them. And that's all the conversation we get. Because verse 51 moves on. Jesus goes back with them to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. Now this phrase, he continued, what does it imply about Jesus' subjection? I heard someone say something. That's right. In the past, he has been subject, and now he's just going back to that. Very good. He previously was subject. Notice then that the Son of God, sorry if my mic's doing weird things, Notice that the Son of God and Messiah continually subjected himself to two common and imperfect human parents while he was in their household. And note Mary's reaction. She treasured all these things in her heart. Now the idea of the word treasure here is that she continually and carefully kept these things in her mind. She was taking in all these events and holding on to them. By the way, this phrase may sound familiar to you. Because if we just look back in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, we've seen this before. After the greeting of Gabriel to Mary, Luke 1.29 says, 
But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Or Luke chapter 2, verse 19. After Mary hears the words from the shepherds about the newborn Jesus, Luke says, But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Here for the third time, we hear about Mary continually and carefully pondering what she has seen and heard. Then verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature. The word translated stature could refer to age or height. But then the last line in verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in favor with God and men. And we've made our observations. Let's ask interpretation questions now. How did Jesus end up staying behind in Jerusalem? How did that happen? The text doesn't tell us exactly how, but we can say one thing about it. What can we say about how it happened? Yeah, Steve. Well, they were in Jerusalem anyway, so I can't put myself in the position of the Son of God. But, you know, you can kind of say if he was... I mean, the reason I'm confused is this hypothetic union of God and man. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that could be part of the solution here. We are going to talk more about the hypostatic union, the idea of Jesus being fully God, perfectly God, perfectly man, fully man. And there may be something, too, that Jesus was drawn to learning more about God as a man and growing in wisdom. We'll say more about that also. But when we characterize was it Jesus' curiosity, it was it kind of like he knew what his parents were doing, but he's like, I'm going to do my own thing because, you know, I'm just so curious Well, we have to be a little bit guarded because whatever the explanation is, we know that Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not, it couldn't have been the case that Jesus knew his parents were leaving and he ran away from them in order to hang out at the temple or to learn more about God. If such were the case, then Jesus could be blamed for showing lack of concern to his parents, for not being submissive, for being rebellious. Now, Jesus being left behind is, must have been accidental in some way. We don't know exactly how, but it must have been accidental and probably simply based off of a wrong assumption made by his parents. That's the only detail we get in the text. They supposed him to be in the caravan. They had made a wrong assumption. Now, why did they make that assumption? Why didn't they keep better track of Jesus? Again, we don't know. You'd think that they had some decent reason to believe this, like some relative claimed to go collect Jesus, but didn't end up doing that, or Mary and Joseph saw Jesus with a certain relative and assumed he was still with that same relative. Nevertheless, going a whole day's journey without really knowing if you brought the Messiah child back with you does seem like a bad idea. Yeah. Wait, can you say that again? That's true. It isn't the first time they've gone to Jerusalem. It's not the first time Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. So, yeah, they may have figured, all right, let's just do our thing. It's time to leave Jesus. And they assumed he would be with them. Yeah. It's not that he was told he was always growing up with him. So maybe he had, the parents told him to 
That's true, too. That's a good point, Danny. He's 12. He's almost a man in Jewish society. The bar mitzvah takes place around 13. So, yeah, they assumed he, he's responsible enough. When we say it's time to go, Jesus, uh, they assumed he would be with them. Yeah, so it's hard to say exactly what happened. But there somehow was a miscommunication or an accident. Jesus didn't sin. He wasn't being mischievous. He wasn't being rebellious. But somehow he ended up getting left behind. Now, how many days were Joseph and Mary searching for Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, it says they found him three days later. But how long was the actual search for Jesus in the city? Probably it was just one. Because it says they went a day's journey from Jerusalem before they realized he wasn't with them, which means to get back to Jerusalem, it would have taken another day. And then once you're in Jerusalem, another day to search for Jesus. So most understand this three days description to be a sum total. It wasn't they were searching for him three days in Jerusalem, but on the third day, after they had left Jerusalem, they found him. Now, how did Jesus sustain himself while he was waiting for his parents in Jerusalem? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we don't see him being agitated. And we do see that he is a wise child who knew who his true father was. Jesus then, no doubt, acted similarly to he did to how he does in the rest of the Gospels. He did not worry, but he relied upon his heavenly father for provision. Perhaps someone gave Jesus food and drink. Or he may have gone himself to a local water fountain. Where did he sleep? Well, either with a family that offered to take him in for the night or in a relatively safe spot outside. This would have taken place in the spring, so it probably wouldn't have been that bad sleeping outside this time of year. However it happened, Jesus was, he was okay. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, in the of my father? Did he mean house or did he mean business? Well, this is a debated point among biblical scholars, but the most widely held view is that which is translated here in the New American Standard. House. Did you not know I would be in my father's house? That's the view I favor as well. And the reason is because for this phrase from Matthew to make any sense, for him to leave out a word like that, it's supposed to be obvious from the context. It's supposed to be obvious that he doesn't need to supply it in there. Well, so if we're looking for the most obvious idea from the context, Jesus is in God's temple, God's house, so that seems to be the most ready word to supply in that phrase. Did you not know I was supposed to be in my father's house? So what is Jesus communicating then by saying this to his parents? Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Well, the two statements together are revealing. Certainly, Jesus could not be asking, why were you looking for me at all? Well, the parents had good reason to look for him since they had lost him and they needed to find him again. So that's their responsibility as good and loving parents. Jesus' why question could not have been about the act of searching, but instead the manner of their search. Why were you looking for me all over the city? Didn't you know where I would be? Why have you been so anxious in your search? Wasn't it obvious where I would be? You didn't have to worry. Of course, I would be here in my father's house. But Jesus doesn't mean Joseph when he uses the phrase, my father. What does this statement reveal about Jesus' own knowledge? He knows that God is his father. He knows that he is the son of God. 
And this doesn't seem to be a truth that his parents have taught or emphasized to him because when he says this to them, they don't understand. But Jesus knows. And he knows with confidence. Nevertheless, the text says that there are other things that Jesus didn't know. Verse 40 and verse 52 say that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. And one of the actions Jesus is doing in the temple is he's asking questions. So Jesus, apparently, needed to learn spiritual truth. What does this demonstrate about Jesus? He was human. And we already alluded to this fact, but this is showing that Jesus is a true human just like us. A human child or a human man must learn about life and must learn about God. Luke is especially keen to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, but all the Gospels affirm this truth. Where else in the Gospels do we see Jesus affected by human limitations? It's another example. He gets tired. You remember when he calms the storm for the disciples? What was he doing? He was asleep. He was fast asleep in the middle of the storm. That's only possible if you're tired and you have total confidence in God. What else? Yeah. He, got hungry. he got hungry. Multiple times we hear him getting hungry. And when he's in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days, it says at the end of that he got hungry. Or when he's at the well with a Samaritan woman, he asks the disciples uh, about food, and they go to get some. And when he, later on in the Gospels, approaches a fig tree, says he came to it because he was hungry, but then he noticed it didn't have any figs. So yeah, what else? Yeah, Amy. Sure. Yeah, good question. We'll come back to that in just a bit. How omniscient was Jesus? But where else do we see human limitations? He was hungry, got tired. Rob? Like, he didn't know certain things, like the return, like the, the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so we know that there were times where he clearly didn't know things. Uh, even here in Luke, we saw that he was growing in wisdom. But he does say later on, no one knows the day of my coming. Not even the Son, but only the Father in heaven. And perhaps there's another instance whenever Jesus is traveling through a crowd and the woman with the bleeding issue touches him, he says, who touched my garments? Now maybe you could say, well, he was just trying to draw her out. Okay, perhaps. But it may be that he actually didn't know. We see other instances of Jesus' humanity. He gets thirsty. On the cross, he cried out, I thirst. He gets physically stressed in the garden. His sweat drops became like drops of blood. And he was exposed to temptation, most notably in the wilderness. So we see these human limitations throughout the Gospels, but we also see Jesus' superhuman or supernatural ability. He does miracles. He has knowledge of other people's thoughts. He has knowledge of divine truth that apparently was not given to him by any human. He's transfigured before the disciples. So how... How do these things fit together? Well, I'm going to borrow from the John MacArthur Study Bible here and their description. These phenomena, these supernatural phenomena, are rather than saying that Jesus was drawing upon the power of the Father, rather the Father was unveiling certain aspects of Jesus' deity that was present the whole time, but normally unused. So God says, I'm going to give you some of the knowledge that you already have in this instance. I'm going to unveil that part of your knowledge so that you know what people are thinking. Or I'm going to unveil some aspect of your power so that you can do this miracle. That's one way to describe what's going on. And that's why, to get back to your question, Amy, 
That's why we can say Jesus needed to learn, but sometimes he knows things that nobody else could tell him. One way to describe that is that the Father is unveiling, lifting the veil on certain aspects of Jesus' deity for a time. Now, even though Jesus is the Son of God, he continually subjected himself to his earthly parents. Why is such action significant? Yeah, it's a mark of the humility of God, and it's another instance of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Even as a child, he was perfectly submissive to his parents. This then affirms the godliness of obeying and honoring parents. I know this is the adult Sunday school class, but this is the true principle. If the Son of God had obeyed and honored his imperfect earthly parents, then certainly all children should do the same. Of course, accepting if your parents tell you to sin. Now, why does Luke, another question here, why does Luke keep mentioning Mary's pondering and treasuring? He does this very noticeably. It always seems to be Mary. Why does he keep mentioning that? What are some possible reasons? Why does Mary keep treasuring and pondering? A couple things we could say. One, this emphasizes how amazing all these events are. Jesus, I mean, I'm sorry, Mary is treasuring and pondering, but, and she often gets astonished, but she's not the only one. Lots of people who are observing what's going on or hearing what's going on, they, they become amazed. They are astonished. In Mark's gospel, we saw that especially. People are just constantly amazed at what's happening, what Jesus is doing. And so when Mary is pondering or wondering, treasuring what's happening around her, this shows how amazing these things are. It also emphasizes that these events should be considered and thought about. If it's so amazing, they're worthy for anyone to ponder. But also it emphasizes how Mary herself did not completely understand what was taking place. She had to keep thinking about it. She didn't quite get it. And we'll see the same thing with Jesus' disciples as we move to the Gospels. They understand some things, but they don't fully understand. Jesus will make certain statements, and the, the writer will say, and they kept asking or talking about, what did Jesus mean? It's only after Jesus ascends and we get to the day of Pentecost that we have a more confident understanding from the disciples. Yeah? We get a sense from the text. Mary says, I am your father. And she says, they were astonished. It's almost, you get a sense, Mary's um, acting more like the mother of her child than the son. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's totally possible, Danny, just to repeat your comment that with Mary's question, you know, why did you do this to a son? How could you do this to us? And the way she refers to Joseph as your father, yeah, it doesn't sound like she has the virgin birth, the son of God, all that understanding forefront in her mind. But considering what takes place in this passage, yeah, maybe that's part of what she's pondering later on. Hmm, maybe I need to rethink recategorize in my mind what exactly is happening. He's not simply my child. He's not simply the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He refers to God even as his own father. So certainly those things are probably part of it. Now, we come to one of the, one of the most intriguing statements in this passage, and that's where it says, Jesus increased in favor with God. How could that be possible? 
This is a mysterious statement, but it must be related to the earlier statements that we've considered about Jesus growing in wisdom. Because Jesus was a man, he not only grew in wisdom, but also in favor with God, his Father. His heavenly Father became more and more pleased with the Son's actions while on earth, because he was a man. But you may ask, how can this be? Was not the Father already infinitely pleased with the Son? Well, yes. But the Incarnation adds another mysterious element to the Trinitarian relationship. All right, we're just going to wade a little bit into this issue. This is difficult to describe territory, difficult to understand territory. Uh, but let's see if we can describe what's going on without drifting into error. God was always unendingly pleased with the Son. Before the world began, the God had existed perfectly together outside of time. There was no such thing as eternity past or eternity future. There wasn't even time. It was just timelessness. And he was totally, unendingly pleased with the Son. The Father already knew all that the Son would accomplish in history, and in a sense, redemption was already accomplished before the foundation of the world, because after all, there is no time. So there's no way that the Father's joy and pleasure in the Son could be increased. But nevertheless, having the Son enter time allowed the Father to become increasingly pleased with the Son as that Son was within time. To try and describe this concept another way, Jesus' incarnation allowed the Father to become increasingly pleased with what Jesus was accomplishing in history in the same manner in that God was already pleased in eternity with what Jesus was going to accomplish in history. So in one sense, God's pleasure in the Son was increasing. But in another sense, God's pleasure in the Son was the same as ever. It's the same with Jesus' glory. Did Jesus' incarnation increase the glory of the Son? Well, in one sense, yes, since the state of the Son at the end of his mission as redemption was clearly different than at the beginning. He had taken on human nature. He had paid the penalty for sin. He had humbled himself even to the point of death. None of these things were true before about the Son. So God highly exalts the Son for accomplishing all these things. Moreover, Jesus veiled his heavenly majesty and power to come to the earth so that he could truthfully say while on the earth, the Father is greater than I. Yet all of this was foreknown by the Trinity in eternity. The Son was already infinitely glorious for what he would accomplish in time, so his actually accomplishing it did not increase his glory. That glory already belonged to the Son. And even though Jesus veiled certain aspects of his deity, he never stopped being God in any way. He never really lost his glory. He never really lost his majesty, his power, his omniscience, etc. Even though he was not using or fully displaying these things while he was on the earth. You see, God could never have been deficient in any glory. Neither could any person of the Trinity be deficient in any glory. Otherwise, they would be violating their own nature as God. So when we consider the incarnation and redemption accomplished by God, we both see that these acts brought new glory to God, and they did not bring new glory to God. They were merely new manifestations of the glory God always had. Now, you're saying, I still don't get it. Well, that's, that's okay. This is hard to understand, and part of this is really too wonderful for us, as David says in the Psalms. I have still unquieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. I don't try to contemplate things that are too wonderful for me. But we can nonetheless affirm what Luke says here. 
Jesus, as a human, increased in favor with God. While understanding, as God, Jesus always had God's full and infinite favor. All right, that's, that's the best I can do with that issue for right now. One final interpretation question. Why does Luke include this account? Why is he the only one? Why did he feel the need to tell us, rather the Spirit through him, to tell us about Jesus being left behind in the temple in this one instance? Why include this? What does it show us that would be in accord with Luke's main purpose for this book? Yeah. Remember the thing, the purpose statement that I've given you for the book of Luke? Jesus is the man who came to save all men. Well, for Jesus to truly do that, he has to be a true man. And so Luke is showing us, look, he is a true man. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in stature. He was asking questions in the temple. He had to learn more about God and about life. But what else does this passage show us about Jesus? Though he was fully man, going back to what you said, Steve, he was at the same time fully God. And he always understood who he was and what his mission was. Already at age 12, Jesus is clear about who he is and why he's here. He came to accomplish the salvation of all men. And remember, this relates to Luke's overarching purpose between the two books, Luke and Acts. Luke wants to show that God's gospel plan has always been set. It has never changed. The message has never changed, neither during Jesus' lifetime nor during the ministry of the apostles. Jesus did not need to discover his identity or learn of God's plan and then adjust himself. He always knew these things and was always intent on accomplishing the salvation mission. Questions about what we've seen or discussed today from this passage? Yeah. Hmm. You know, we seem to be emphasizing not sin, but also there's a positive righteousness which you can see. Because he grew in favor with God and men. Hmm. He loved his neighbors himself. Hmm. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength. He loved his neighbor. So you would see him growing in favor with men with that kind of you know, that kind of righteousness. Yeah, that's a good point, Danny. Yeah, to repeat your comment. We also have the phrase, besides he grew in favor with God, but he also grew in favor with man, which emphasizes the positive righteousness of Jesus. He wasn't simply refraining from sin, but he was actually doing all that God commanded in his law. He was loving his neighbor as himself. He was being kind and considerate. So if we think about, like, oh, how did Jesus treat his siblings, and what was that like? Well, we can infer from this statement that Jesus was treating them with love. He was being totally righteous to his siblings and to his parents and to all those that met him. And when you are near someone who is displaying that kind of righteousness, you can't help but show favor to them. You can't help but have a more favorable disposition to them. Now, it's true that some of that righteousness just convicts you and that makes you resent that person. But Jesus' kindness, his righteousness, it was causing him to increase in favor with men as well as with God. That's a good point, Danny. Yeah, Steve. Hmm. Um, and, and he had that 
Yeah. That's a good question, Steve. Is the mention of mentioning of Jesus being 12 right before the age of manhood, is that really significant? I think it is significant. I'm not sure all the ways that it is significant because you're right. It's kind of like he is very close to manhood. He has matured. He has become more responsible, but he's still a child and he is in subjection to his parents. I'm not sure what all the implications of that are, but I think both sides of his being almost a man but also being a child are present in him being 12 years old. It is interesting that Luke doesn't say he was around 12 like he does later. You know, we said this before. When he does later, he was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. Now it says when he became 12, or other translations, he was 12. So Luke was rather sure that that was the age of Jesus at this time. It may simply be a historical detail, but I think there is a shade, there is a shade of, oh, keep in mind that he has developed to a certain point at, at this time. Other questions or comments? All right. So what are some takeaways we can see from our observation and interpretation of this passage? I want to go to the final step of our inductive Bible study method now and talk about application. I thought of at least three. Three things for us to take away from this passage. First of all, ponder. Ponder again the amazing facts of Jesus' incarnation and redemption. Some of this is beyond us, even as we've talked about today. But God revealed these things so that we might continually and carefully consider them as Mary has. So let us treasure God's work of redemption as we consider its astonishing nature. Again, this is not some sort of tradition that we rehearse as part of our culture. This is history. This is what really happened. Number two, Recognize. Recognize Jesus as both fully God and fully man. Throughout church history, various cults and heresies have demoted Jesus on one side or the other. Oh, he wasn't really a man. He just appeared as a man. Or he wasn't really God. He was a created being. People have often claimed he wasn't fully human or he wasn't fully God. But we must recognize that both are amazingly and mysteriously true. The theological term that we use to describe it is the hypostatic union. There was a perfect unity between Jesus' two natures, his 100% manness, his 100% godness. It's, more, it's difficult to describe, but it was perfect. It was not a mixture. It was not 50-50. It was 100% both. And we need to affirm both of those things if we are to affirm the God and Savior who truly is. And finally, and this goes with the other two, believe. Believe in God's forever known salvation plan. God the Son, taking the place of sinful man, in order that whoever repents and believes in him might be reconciled to God and receive eternal life from God. That's one of the reasons why we're be, we've been given these Gospels, so that we might believe, so that we might become confident, more confident in our belief. Now that's it for this week. Next week is a special Sunday school. And then the week after that, I'll be back with you looking at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Let's close in prayer. Our great God... It is just so mysterious and amazing what is actually true. God, that you sent your son who became a man, who grew up as a man, needed to learn as a man, and yet was fully God the entire time. Had his omniscience available and that, Father, you gave him omniscience about certain things at certain times. He was God. He was man. He is God and he is man. He is our high priest and our intercessor. He is our savior. God, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this for unworthy man. 
This is your glory on display. You've always been glorious, but we didn't know it. We didn't see the, great, the grandeur of it, but you've revealed it to us, not only by accomplishing what you did, but telling us about it. Lord, we know we cannot neglect so great a salvation. Lord, we know that we cannot walk unworthily of this salvation. So help us by your Spirit. Help us to walk worthy. Help us to meditate on these things. Help us to apply them into our lives. Help us to be in so much awe about what you've accomplished and help us to tell others about it because they need to know. They need to know all that you have done, O God, so that they might be saved. I pray that you would help us do this. Deliver us from our weakness by your strength and by your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.